These military families that are mainly over at the Marine Corps Air Station, uh, Miramar, are young families. They're away from their own families. And you know, having a baby can be a little bit of a daunting experience. So we provide baskets for these families. The baby baskets are comprised of a lot of different little baby items. We have baby gowns, little onesies, little booties. We have the normal things like baby wipes or baby powder, baby lotion. And we try and give these baby baskets out every month. So it's wonderful to be able to stand in that gap for a moment to be able to donate that sort of thing to them. And they're so appreciative. The idea that others would care and have compassion, that's what Jesus wants us to be, is compassionate. We respect our service members so much because of what they do for our country, the sacrifices that they make, that we want to be able to give back. They are our neighbors, and we can be the hands and feet of Jesus to be able to bless them and to encourage them and let them know that there are people who do love them and care for them. You 
It's good being back together uh, in worship, and I think it's fitting that we finish up this summer series on the good life according to God on Labor Day. After all, think about it this way, work in all its expressions is an essential part of the good life according to God. Well, let me say that again. Work in all of its expressions is an essential part of the good life according to God. Now, perhaps your initial response to hearing that is, no way. Work is hard. Work is inconvenient. 
uh, work is, can be drudgery, uh, I hate my job, uh, uh, I like it, but it's hard. I don't know, whatever thoughts that come to your mind are, are valid. Uh, but let me give it a larger context. Let's reframe our understanding of the good life because the good life requires work in all its expressions. Work is essential to the good life, not just to earn money to buy things or to earn enough money and power to get out of work. Whether we get paid or not, work in all of its expressions is an essential part of the good life. So that's where we're going today. That's the big idea of the morning. Let me start with this passage out of Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. You know, the context is that God is, uh, is creating. Whatever God says appears. Let there be light. There's light. And each day, there's a sequence of things that he's creating. And on the sixth day, we're created. And what's great, of course, is on the sixth day, uh, when we're created, the following day is the seventh day on which God rests. Our first full day uh, was a day off. It's a vacation. So here's the context uh, of that. And then um, at the end of the creation process, God says it is good. Every step of the way, he says it's good, it's good, it's good over the six days. Uh, at the very end of it, he said it's very good. It's perfect. It's exactly what it should be. So let me read this passage to you out of Genesis chapter 1. So God created mankind, humankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. A description of our co-humanity, male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. He's describing our work. Fill the earth and subdue it. This word subdue isn't oppress, keep it down, abuse, misuse. The word subdue is to manage it, organize it to be good stewards of it, to use an old-fashioned term. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Uh, let's go to Genesis 2, another uh, recapitulation of the creation account. In Genesis 2, 15, we read this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So that's a brief description uh, of who we are. We're people who are created to uh, work and to care for the world. So Genesis 1 and 2 gloriously describes God's creative work and ours. We see our purpose is working and managing the world with care under the sovereign authority of God. So the generosity of God blesses us by including us in His wondrous work. That's fantastic. But then we get to chapter 3. By Genesis 3, humankind has fallen under a curse because of our disobedience. It's a shock. It's horrible. It's not the way it's supposed to be. The harmony of creation now gives way to laboring under a curse. All of our work is fraught with an overwhelming sense of resistance on the part of creation. A woman labors giving birth. People labor trying to make a living, a life on the land. So the good news from Genesis 1 and 2 becomes the bad news of Genesis 3. And yet we see in Genesis 3 and 4 God uh, promising uh, to 
um, redeem uh, his creation. There's a hint of redemption uh, uh, in, this, in this part of Genesis. So there's good news on the way. Is basically the way we leave this sad chapter. At just the right time, God enters the world to redeem it and recreate it. This is the advent of Christ. That Jesus Christ, God himself, God in the flesh, fully God, fully human, enters into the world at just the right time. Uh, next week we're going to talk about this. How the timing for Jesus' entry into the world was perfect. But right now let's just leave it at the fact that God enters the world at just the right time to redeem it and recreate it. What a storyline. It's a classic storyline. Something horrible happened to disrupt what would be an, an ideal situation. And now in the midst of our yearning, our pleading, oh, oh who will save us? Who will make this right? Uh, God does make it right, and God does come to save us. And so every aspect of human life, including work, shall be transformed, shall be remade. In fact, those of us who are believers in Christ are part of this new creation. Uh, we are new creations in Christ. Not going back to the garden, but going forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And it's all of God's work that we get to be a part of. It's all about God, but it includes us. And so our relationship with God is personal and practical. That means our commitments matter. God is saving us so that we can make commitments to our right identity, to our true purpose and mission in life, which is to participate in the glorious and wonderful works of God. And so we see this passage in Colossians chapter 3, uh, 23 to 24. One of the most beloved uh, passages in Scripture. It says this, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Good things will come out of this good work that God is calling you to do. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Well, as I say, uh, this is a beloved and off-quoted verse. But we need to see it in context. We need to read it in context. I read the actual verse, but I read it in, in, in a way that doesn't give it a proper context. So let me read the proper context now uh, with this verse at the heart of it. So now we're in the same place, Colossians, but we start in Colossians 3, 22, and we go all the way to 25. So let me read Colossians 3, 22 to 25. Slaves. What? Yeah, he starts, Paul, writing to these people in Colossae, uh, a village in Turkey, along a whole cluster of villages uh, to which he has visited and has established churches. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So the context is that Paul is writing to the whole church, and he mentions and calls out slaves as he talks about work. But the fact is, the heart of this message is to all people. This is a message not just for slaves, but for all people. And by placing this 
passage in the context of slavery, uh, it's as if Paul is acknowledging the fact that in a sense we're all slaves. We're all slaves to the fallen creation. We're all slaves to this curse over humankind. Uh, Don't you relate to that in the sense that uh, if you run a small business, you're sort of a slave uh, to the business. You're a slave to your clients, keeping your customers happy. You're a slave to the requirements of government uh, compliance issues and reporting issues. Oh my gosh, the amount of time and money small business people have to give uh, to reporting to the government uh, is, is just absolutely enervating. It sucks the energy right out of them. Uh, people with a great job often feel like they have golden handcuffs on. Yes, it's a great job. I get paid a lot of money, but I feel like a slave. I'm a slave to the people who analyze the company's results quarter by quarter, week by week, even day by day. Sometimes it's that I feel like a slave. I'd like to do something else, but if I did something else, I wouldn't make as much money or I I might not get a job at this age or stage of my life, right? So all those vestiges of slavery are very familiar to every human being. And so Paul writes addressing slaves specifically, but really he's addressing, addressing all of us. You all feel like slaves when it comes to work at some point. Even people who love their job. There's a sense in which, oh my gosh, I love it, but sometimes it's just too much of it. And I have to do things I don't necessarily love or don't really represent an alignment of either my values or my talents or my gifts, but they're required territory. So we're called by Christ and commissioned to do our work in His grace. He's speaking to people who are slaves and to people who have an experience of feeling like a slave, but who are now saved by Christ. So he's saying the basis for the way you approach your work, slave or free, is now radically different. Same work, perhaps the same circumstances, but for an entirely different motivation. It's no longer an extrinsic motivation. Do this or you get punished or you won't get fed or or something bad will happen to you. To an intrinsic motivation. I am serving the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I work for the Lord. I might report to a human boss or a board or shareholders or the government itself. But the fact is, I am a free man, a free woman, a free person in Christ, doing my work for Him, in accountability to others, facing the challenges of of every job, in any industry, any place in the world. There's no such thing as an ideal job. Probably most jobs have an ideal day, or ideal aspects to them. But no job is easy or ideal. And so we're called by Christ, commissioned to do our work in His grace, Understanding now that all work is holy, the most mundane work, the most basic work, resonates with the holiness and the glory of God's creation of the world. There's continuity there. As God created, so are we part of of that creation in in doing our work. Never, ever, ever underestimate your uh, capacity to influence your work. Even if you feel like you're treated like a widget, a part, a robot, a living, breathing robot, you bring something absolutely radical to every job you do. That is, you bring the presence of Christ in you into that work environment. So all work is holy. We are earning an inheritance far greater than our work. We're not earning our salvation. That's already been given to us as a gift. This inheritance represents the value accruing to us, the value that we bring wherever we go, doing our work as unto the Lord. There's an inherent reward to good work. Good work is its own reward. So in working for the Lord, we're blessed to be a blessing. I've been blessed with the capacity to work, to having a job. 
in order that I could be a blessing. I walked out my front door into the front yard this last week, and I saw the Terminix truck across the street, and the Terminix guy getting out of the truck, walking over to a neighbor's house. And I was cracking up, thinking, you know what? This is an awesome day for my neighbor, because they have an issue, they have a problem that they need help with. And the Terminix guy is the most important guy in their day at this point, because he's going to help them get rid of rats or mice or termites or some kind of infestation, ants, cockroaches, who knows what. So the Terminix guy (laughs) is absolutely a gift from God at that point, right? In working for the Lord, we're blessed to be a blessing. No matter what the title is uh, over our job or on our card or at the office door or what our category is, our, our classification in the corporation or the environment in which we work, we're doing the holy work of God by being us in that place. Let that sink in. That's not hyperbole, over-exaggeration, wishful thinking. That's saying that when you show up, the presence of God is in the house. In working for the Lord, we are blessed to be a blessing. So let me ask you the question, is your work a blessing or a curse? Well, sometimes it feels like a curse, right. But do you see it as a curse? Dear God, do I have to go to work? Or do you see it as a blessing? Lord, I'm, I'm tired, I need a break, it's hard, COVID makes everything way harder. But Lord, thank you for the blessing of representing you in this place, in this way. Is your work a blessing or a curse? Is it for you about thriving in Christ as you do the work, no matter how hard or inconvenient it might be? Or is this just about surviving? I need a paycheck. If you just do it out of survival, we all need to survive. But if we don't do it from a perspective of thriving, that somehow God's going to use this in me and use me in this, we miss the fact that God wants to do a work in us and through us. This is not about grandiosity. This is about the day-to-day reality of a personal and practical relationship with the living God. Because when you show up wherever you work, you in Christ bring hope. You bring hope. I read a book uh, recently about two women who were distributing Bibles in Iran. This happened several years ago, but the book just came out. Two women in their uh, 20s and early 30s, uh, they're arrested, they're put in jail. It's a filthy, horrible, horrible jail in Tehran. They're transferred to an even more horrible prison. But in the jail cell and then in the prison itself, uh, they simply elect to live as people who have been saved and are representing Christ. They're scared. They're grossed out. Who wouldn't be? They're afraid. They don't know if their family knows what's happened in it. They've just been arrested and pulled off the street. They don't know what the charges are. And what do they do? They see the women in the jail really bummed out. And so they start respectfully caring for these women, inquiring, hey, can I pray for you? Can I help you? Uh, they see how gross the bathrooms are. They ask the guards, can we get some materials so we can clean the bathrooms? And the guards are shocked. Well, yeah, sure. They bring a different attitude, a different demeanor, a different perspective to that what feels like a God-forsaken place. It's no longer God-forsaken because they're in that place. And likewise, when they go to prison, they deal with all the harassment uh, of being in prison, all the indignities, the injustices of that horrible prison environment. And yet they decide to thrive in Christ in that place, not denying their fears, not denying the fact that this is wrong and unjust and offensive, but recognizing that God is in them 
And God is going to work through them if they simply pay attention to the opportunities around them. Oh my gosh, their presence becomes a holy work in an unholy place. Powerful. So do you see your work as a sign of slavery or an expression of your salvation? I hope each of us can learn to see our work as an expression of our salvation. The good news of Christ becomes good news in us for Christ. Let me ask you this question. Uh, What was your favorite work as a child? Uh, Because, you know, childhood is its own career. Uh, That's a whole career phase and stage in our life, childhood. And it's supposed to be an awesome uh, career. We have a career before a career. Why? Well, because we could do something for hours on end and not get tired of doing it. We were absolutely curious and playful and imaginative. That was our primary work as a kid, to imagine things, to do things, to take on roles, to use um, objects. Yeah, at some point you have real toys maybe, but you don't even need toys. You just need stuff that you can imagine and have fun with. Remember what you did as a child. Jack Van Zyl, you might not know the name. Jack Van Zyl was a kid born and raised in Namibia. Namibia is, uh, (laughs) the best way to describe it is it looks like Death Valley, only not as nice. I mean, it is just this moonscape of a country with some nice little parts in it, perhaps, but really overall, it's just bleak looking. And it's, and it's big on, on minerals and mining and, and those sorts of things that are necessary, uh, but they don't make for a verdant, beautiful environment. Uh, nobody's going to confuse Namibia uh, with Malawi. But you can imagine, and by the way, the, the, the name Namibia means vast expanse. Uh, probably uh, in the vernacular to a high school kid, if he said, hey, what does Namibia mean? It means, I can't wait to get out of here. But Jack Van Zyl grew up there, and he grew up there looking at that massive, Namibian sky. Can you imagine at night what it looks like when it's wide open like that? There's no ambient light. And all you see is the massive array of stars and planets. And I imagine Jack Van Zyl as a kid saying, what's up there? What would it take to go there? Could that be my job someday, exploring this vast universe above me? Now remember, this is a kid in what, again, looks like this out of the way of anywhere place called Namibia. Fast forward, Jack Van Zyl ends up getting a PhD from Caltech. Jack Van Zyl, now Dr. Jack Van Zyl, becomes the director of space exploration at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which means that Jack Van Zyl was responsible for every, every exploration of space project that Caltech and JPL have been doing. You want to talk about trips to Mars or Saturn or anything they've done to explore the universe. Jack Van Zyl has been a part of that. Jack Van Zyl died of a heart attack this week at 63. What a loss to science. What a loss to his family. An amazing guy in every way. Who are the Jack and Jills out there? The next generation of people who will look at the sky and say, I wonder if there's something I can do. This is the power of childhood. Our career in childhood sets us up for all kinds of careers. Now, Jack Van Zyl moved through three phases and stages in his life, the stage of wonder, the stage of affirmation, and the stage of purpose. Uh, and we all do, every single one of us, because children embrace wonder. It's, it's one of those developmental phases that define childhood. Children are about wonder. Teenagers, young adults are about affirmation. Do I have anything to, to contribute? 
If you remember in your, in your adolescent years, if you're an adolescent listening to this, there are people around you saying, hey, I see some great things in you. Have you ever thought about this? You're really good at that. Or that you say, you know, I really aspire to do this. And somebody says, oh my gosh, any, any help I can give you, I'd love to help you with that. Or I know someone you should talk to. It's been really fun to, to hear some young person talk about something that they're interested in or that they want to pursue and think, oh my gosh, I could introduce them to so-and-so. And the affirmation of that is powerful for a young person. And adults, of course, embrace a phase that we call purpose. What is the purpose of my life? Now, notice that these are cumulative. You don't drop wonder when you move into the affirmation stage, nor do you drop affirmation and wonder when you move into the purpose stage. What happens is we are creatures that are created to wonder and to thrive under affirmation, confirmation of our giftedness and our capacity to contribute. But we need a purpose as adults. And so every adult has that wonder in them and that need for affirmation in them. But life can obscure those phases and distract us from them. Here's what that sounds like. I wonder if I'll eat today. I wonder if I'll survive the day. I wonder if I'll be able to find my parents. I wonder if I'll be able to find my children. I wonder what happened to my family. And you think, what? Or how about this? I wish you hadn't been born. My life would be so much better if you weren't in it. You're a burden. I could have done so many things, but I had you. Wow. Or this. Only rich people have purpose. Our people only have problems. I'm describing the experience of, of children and youth and adults in this city, in this county, in this state, in this country, and around the world. This describes families. This describes uh, This describes. Neighborhoods, this describes nations, this, this disruption of wonder and affirmation and purpose. Uh, I think of the name Arshe Cooper. Uh, Arshe Cooper is somebody who wrote a book, a best-selling book. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, it's called A Most Beautiful Thing. It's about these black kids who became rowers, who became a crew team uh, racing uh, in Chicago. And it's an amazing story. I won't go into it right now, but, but get the book. Uh, a most beautiful thing. Uh, the movie just came out. It was on NBC uh, this week. It's in theaters. Uh, uh, it's, it's just fantastic. Google Arshay, A-R-S-H-A-Y, Cooper, and you can read his story. But he was that kid who was wondering, well, why is that, as a nine-year-old, why is that guy lying dead in the street on West Side Chicago, in West Side Chicago? Here's a guy who, who was abandoned by his mom who was working the streets until God miraculously intervened and brought her into a relationship and turned her around. He met his dad one time. He had to run to get to school because if he didn't run, he might get stopped by the several gangs that, 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 that owned aspects of the neighborhood on the way to his school. And once he was at school, he was not safe because there were so many elements vying to dominate that campus, and it was dangerous. Arshay Cooper had a transformational experience where he could rediscover wonder and affirmation and now lives with incredible purpose, committing his life to helping children explore and experience wonder and teenagers explore and experience affirmation and adults discover their purpose. So, what's your primary work in this phase of your life? Are you a child, are you a teenager, or are you an adult? 
This is a super important question. What's your primary work in this phase of your life? Because unless you get back in touch with wonder and affirmation and purpose, you're going to be scrambling and frustrated in your search for making sense of your life at whatever stage you are. So if you want clarity, take time to reconnect to wonder, to affirmation, uh, to purpose. How do you do that? Uh, it's pretty simple, really. You literally say, uh, what am I curious about? What am I hopeful for? What am I yearning for? That's, that's what wonder is about. Affirmation is, hey, what, what is it that I like doing or would love to do if I had the chance to do it? What feedback have I gotten from people about who I am? What have I noticed about the way I relate to people? And then, if there's a purpose for me, how would I leverage my natural gifts, my skills, my life experiences, again, my aspirations, to attach that to some purpose that's larger than me? Why do we do this? Why reconnect with wonder, affirmation, and purpose? Because that's what the Bible tells us we should do. The psalmist is constantly talking about these three themes. The letters in the New Testament, the Gospels themselves, the history of Israel, it's all about wonder and affirmation and purpose. And so it'll help you see your roles and responsibilities with honesty and humility and hope. To be aware of your capacity for wonder, to be aware of your need for affirmation, to be aware that there's a larger purpose that calls you and compels you to make decisions, to make sacrifices, even to suffer for something so important that you couldn't imagine doing otherwise. And so what changes in attitude or behavior do you need for your work? And I'll say your work in the Lord, not just about doing religious things. Our work in the Lord is not just going to church or teaching Bible studies. It certainly includes that. Our work in the Lord is everything we do. Every aspect of work is done for the Lord. Again, not to earn brownie points from Him or, 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 or to please Him. He's pleased us being us. But our work in the Lord is, is how we resonate with the abiding presence of Christ in us in everything we do. Whether you're coaching little kids sports, whether you're serving on the front lines in COVID, uh, whether you're doing research in a lab and it's very lonely, but you know that if you can get it right, lots of people will be blessed. It's working on your marriage. It's, it's paying attention to a small child when you, you know you have other things you need to do. See, what we do is our work in the Lord is comprises everything. It's comprehensive in that regard. And so what do you value? Your best work will support and reflect what you value. Take time to say, okay, what do I value? And what am I doing in terms of my ambitions and my aspirations? Do they reflect my values or do they contradict my values? I value my marriage. Well, are you spending all your time working that you don't really spend any time nurturing your marriage? Well, I love being a parent. I love my kids. Well, again, uh, how much time do they ever actually get? Well, I got work to do. Right. But you have a work to do that includes nurturing your children, nurturing your spouse, nurturing your soul. What will alignment of your values and aspirations require of you? And I can tell you the answer to that really simply. Decisions. You'll need to make decisions based on aligning your values with your ambitions and aspirations. And if you feel like that's too lofty, you'll be applying your values to the demands that everybody seems to be making on your life. Because unless you know your values, you will not know how to say yes or no at the right times or in the right way. Values are not a luxury. Values are like oxygen. 
You lose your values, you lose your life. So what do you value? Are you willing to do the hard work to say, these are my values, and just write them down. I value this. I value a relationship with God. And here's what I do to make that happen. I value a relationship with my spouse. I value a relationship with friends. I value a relationship with this. I value using my money wisely. I, I value you know, managing my sexuality as a gift from God, not to be wasted and abused or misused. I value, and whatever it is, but say your values, write them down, and then look at everything you currently are doing and say, do these things reflect my values? Do they either support my values or come out of my values? And if not, if you notice conflicts and gaps, that's where you want to say, okay, wonder, affirmation, purpose. <laughs> what decisions do I need to make? Where are you over-functioning and under-functioning? Sometimes we over-function in work because it's just easier to do the work or to live up to the demands of the work and underfunction in taking care of our bodies or our souls or our families. We underfunction in nurturing wonder and affirmation and purpose. We overfunctioning, we, we overfunction in terms of being fear-driven, not faith-driven. You get the idea. So what is your preferred rhythm of work and rest? Here's how I manage my work and my rest. I work this way, I rest this way. When I rest, I feel better. So figure out what your rest is. If you're really getting rest, it makes you repair and renew and regain strength so you can do your work. I want to leave you with this thought. What does your best work look like in this stage of your life? What does your best work look like? Whether you're paid for your work or not paid for your work. The work you do, the things that are important to you that you apply yourself to constitute your work. What's the best work in your life in stage right now? What would that look like? One way to move toward understanding that is this. Commit your work as a sacred offering to God. As you think about what constitutes your work, Lord, I commit this as a sacred offering to you. And I need to find rest for my soul so I can honor that work in you. This puts you in play with God. This allows God to come into you and help achieve that alignment. To help achieve that understanding of who you are. Maybe sitting through counseling will be helpful. It certainly involves community. If you're not part of a community, you're, you're helpless. Why is that? Because we need people to support us, to hold us accountable, to give us wise counsel, to encourage us, to say, hey, don't quit, hang in there. Or, yeah, this is over, let it go. Make the big move, take the big risk. Or, hey, you know what, I think you're just frustrated. Oh, hang in there, you still have work to do here. It's not that we're asking people to manage our lives or take responsibility for us, but we're asking for feedback, insight, understanding that others around us can see in us. So support and accountability and good counsel and encouragement are so essential for us understanding what our best work is at any age or stage in our life. So commit your work as a sacred offering to the Lord. Find rest for your soul. Embrace this new season with an open heart to the work that God wants to do in you. God wants to do a work in you, every stage, every step along the way. What does that look like? What is your sense of need? What's the feedback from people telling you what they think you need? Stand firm in His grace. Stay strong in His love. Believing, growing, giving. Don't get tired of those things because that's the way we lean into life. It's the way that we engage life. It's tempting to withdraw from life. Don't do that. Yes, take time for solitude and refreshment, but don't withdraw and run and hide.
Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, Paul says to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I love that. Meditate on that. This is the good life according to God. So Lord Jesus, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters listening to this message. I pray for our church and our community. I pray for the, the world around us. That Lord, as we understand our work in you and respond to your work in us, that we would be able to be an encouragement to people, that we would be able to confront injustice, that we'd be able to comfort people as they labor hard in hard circumstances. Lord, we pray this so that we could experience what what these passages tell us, and not only experience them, but that we could express them in ways that would help other people do likewise. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, this is a communion Sunday, and on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus, having blessed it, took some bread, unleavened matzah, and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup, cup of wine, and having blessed it, he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new relationship made possible through my sacrifice. This is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. I hope that you take time either right this moment or sometime today uh, to take these elements and, uh, and to have a moment of holy communion with God, sharing it with the people uh, around you or just on your own. Opening your heart to him, opening your hands to him, opening your head to him so that you can experience the good life according to God, that it's his gift to us. God wants us to receive this gift. He said, I've come that you might have life in all its fullness. That's the good life that God is offering us. May each one of us receive it, perhaps for the first time today or yet again, and be renewed by it. That's my hope, my prayer for all of us. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and reflect from you illuminating the way for other people. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your day.